0: Tonight, we're in Joshua chapter 2. We've previously, in beginning just to look at the book of Joshua for what it might say to us, have considered that our time, like Joshua's time, is a time for boldness, demanding trust and confidence, obedience and willingness to do what God says, whatever appearances or circumstances may seem to be. Then last week in verses 10 to 18, we considered their preparations to possess the land, which involved a proper attitude toward God's constituted authority and preparations of purity and a commitment to obedience on the part of the people. And then tonight, we meet in chapter 2, preparation to invade, uh, the final stages of preparing to invade the land of the enemy, which was the promised possession of the people, as God had sworn to Abraham that he would give it to them. Now, when Joshua was camped by Jordan across the river from the Jericho, he was across the river from a mighty land. It was a land that had a strong economy. It was a land that provided the... Uh, needs of its people. There were metal ores and uh, the people there had weapons. There were fortified cities as the earth yielded uh, the materials to build strong fortifications. There were healthy and intelligent people well rooted in their land a mighty land possessed by a powerful people and Joshua had no reason to suspect that the taking of the land would be the least bit easy. He had no reason to expect that anybody in the land would cooperate any more than would any other people who felt that a certain land was theirs by right of possession and heritage would uh, be willing uh, to lay down in front of an oncoming enemy and just let the land be taken. And so Joshua faced a great task. He faced it in the knowledge that he was appointed of God to lead the people They were a theocracy. They were led of God. Their position was to obey Him and Him only, and that was the only procedure that God authorized for conducting their affairs. He anticipated that at every point there would be fierce opposition. And so in verse 1, here is, just to have something to call it, the sending of the spies. Now there is a difference here, and in the 12th and 13th chapters of the book of Numbers. For in Numbers 12 and 13, we meet a situation which Moses explains in his farewell address in Deuteronomy 33 and 34. They were getting ready to invade the land. They had been by way of Sinai. There the people had received the law of God, had rebelled against God by way of immorality, had been forgiven and restored, and now they had come to Kadesh Barnea to walk, down the little valley road into the land of promise. And Moses says in his farewell speech that at that time, people came to him and said, Now, Moses, are you really sure that we ought to do this? Moses said, Why, of course I am. This is the reason God brought us out of Egypt, to take the land of promise. And under pressure from them, Moses appointed 12 spies to view the land and to bring back a report as to whether or not they should proceed with the conquest. Now Moses knew in retrospect, and it is quite easy for us to see from reading the Word, that that was a great mistake, because when God is given specific orders, that's really all you need to know. You just need to do what God says. That's all they needed to know. And those spies went with a critical eye seeking reasons to deny the commandment of God and they found them. And ten of the twelve spies came back, committed to a course of action that was in direct and opposite action to what God had commanded that they do. Now this situation is entirely different. For if you will look at chapter 1 verse 10... Moses has already told the captains of the people to pass through the people and tell them, within three days we shall cross this Jordan. So here is an entirely different situation. Joshua sent these spies not in order to find evidence against God's orders, but in order to seek information by which he might lay a battle plan for the taking of of the first object of their conquest. You know, our faith does not preclude carefulness. Joshua had no doubt that he was going to do what God said, but he also had no way of knowing at this point that he wouldn't have to fight for Jericho. You see, knowing that Jericho was a fortified city with walls 12 feet thick, Joshua had every reason to expect that he would have to lay siege to the city and capture it in that fashion after a long siege. And so what Joshua was doing was just plainly and simply good management. They were going across the Jordan. That was an established fact. And he sent two men across the river to spy out Jericho in order that the plans for the battle might be more effective with no question as to whether or not they would obey but only as to making their plans more effective. Now, I don't believe it is without significance that Joshua appointed two men rather than 12. For Joshua had been one of only two out of 12 that had had the proper attitude and had gone in faith rather than in unbelief. Now, I rather suspect, though the Scripture is silent, that these men were very carefully chosen. They were very carefully chosen, and Joshua took them to his office, shut the door, and told them, Now, before you go, I want you to go with an awareness that we are not here to question the Word or the will of God, only to seek a way in which we might serve Him effectively. And so they went, carefully chosen and appointed, not to gather confidence, but only to lay their plans for conquest. Then in verses 2 through 7, we've seen the sending of the spies. Here you might call this the saving of the spies. Now it's pretty obvious that Israel had been isolated in a desert place for a long time and that their only warfare had been open warfare where the enemy had sought them on a plane of battle and they really didn't know about much about reconnaissance and intelligence work. I must believe from reading the scriptures that the makeup man and the disguise uh, artist in the Israeli army were really not very good at all. Because in these verses we read that the two men crossed the river, went to Jericho, checked in at a motel and then somebody came to the king and said, "Oh, king, there's two Israeli spies at the Holiday Inn. Well... This was a zeal, perhaps not according to knowledge. It is well to notice that even though these men were unwise and uncareful in their approach to the city, because they were divinely sent and appointed, God protected them anyway. The spies were saved by a most unlikely source, for Joshua or the spies had no right to expect that anybody within the walls of Jericho would cooperate. But under the guidance of God some way, Coincidence, if you believe in that sort of thing. They found their way to the place of a woman within whose body rested an awareness of who God was. And an awareness that God was in control. And here they were saved by the risking of her life in order that she might be within the realm of God's favor. You know, it is obvious that the king of Jericho had to be aware that a very strong enemy was just across the river. You know, there's no way he could have been unaware of a, of a nation of three million people a couple of miles away. There's no way. And we must believe that if the king of Jericho had had his way, those two spies would never have gotten into the city at all. Now I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 3 where addressing one of the churches of Asia Minor, the, the, the Lord Jesus sends the message, Behold, I have put you before you an open door and, and no man can shut it. Jericho was the object of God's judgment. It was step one in the, in the conquest of the land of promise. And even though the king and all of his forces had determined to protect the city and to keep the enemy out, two men of Israel were able to walk through the gate and down the street and to a place of ultimate protection. When God opens the door of opportunity, no man can shut it. I want you to notice that these verses say the king was alarmed. The king was alarmed. Here are two unarmed men who come in the city. A city with 12 foot thick walls, with 20 foot high gates. A city with a well-equipped army. And the king is alarmed over the presence of two unarmed men. And I believe it points out by way of illustration, by way of a type. The king of Jericho is a, a type of the enemy of God who had mustered his forces and organized them to see that the will of God was thwarted. I am reminded how the psalmist writes that when the Spirit of God dwells on his people, one of them shall put 10,000 to flee. It is the enemy of God in any situation who has the only real cause to be alarmed. I suspect that during the moments when three young Hebrew men were accompanied by their Lord in the furnace in Babylon, that while they were untouched and unsinged and unwarmed by the fires of a furnace that had killed the men who threw them in, the king of Babylon began to shake in his boots. I imagine that a pack of hungry lions starved and prepared for the enemies of the realm were frightened to death at their inability to touch the man of God who was dropped among them. And yet Daniel was calm and his faith did not waver. And when in the circumstances of life you as a Christian seem drastically outnumbered, proceed with an awareness that when you are within the will of God, the fury of hell and all of its instruments of war cannot touch you, for you are covered in the cleft of a rock by the hand of God, and the enemy cannot penetrate his defenses. Here the spies are saved because God opened a door and no man could shut it. Here in verses 8 to 11, this doesn't really alliterate, but the idea here, the effect of this passage on me is that God is vindicated. God is made in the eyes of the people... It is made known by the spies in their report that God was right all of the time. Now bear in mind what had happened 40 years before. Common sense had prevailed. The worldlings and those of weak and no faith among God's people had prevailed by the sheer influence of numbers. And they had refused to move at God's command because they and their humanity could not understand how God proposed to do what He had promised He would do. And now here is a sad illumination. Remember, if you will, that the armies of Israel, which numbered 600,000 men besides the women, every adult of Israel over 20 years of age at the time of the first opportunity to conquer the land was sentenced to die in the wilderness. Oh, what a tragedy this illuminates. For behind Israel, within the wilderness of Sinai, on that little triangle of land, there were well over a million graves of people who never experienced the promise Of God because of unbelief. For note what she says I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the terror of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Now, when did that happen? Verse 10. For we heard how the Lord dried the waters of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt, and what you did under the two kings of the Amorites that are on the other side of the Jordan. Forty years before, the people of God went through a ungodly, unholy, hand-wringing exercise. Oh Lord, how are we ever going to afford it? And all of the time, the enemy on the other side of the river knew it was all over. There were a million, probably two or three hundred thousand graves in the wilderness that didn't need to be there. Because sometimes those without the fellowship of faith somehow have a clearer perception of who God is than we do. God was truly vindicated here. I would point to you to the faith of the harlot Rahab. Rahab's faith expressed itself in action. You know, it's real easy to say, I believe God, but when it comes right down to whether or not we really believe God, the only test is what we do about what we say we believe. Oh, I believe the Word, then live by it. Oh, I believe God, then obey God. Oh, I know, but but nothing. Either it's the Word and either God's true or God's a liar. They're just two choices. God was vindicated. She and all of the people of her land knew that all was lost. And they knew it in plenty of time. For all of the people of God who had endured the afflictions of Egypt to know the joy of the land of promise. But they refused to go in because God's word and God's command did not meet the test of their human logic. Then in verses 12... To twenty-two, Here is the sanction that the spies uh, arranged with Rahab. First in verses 12 to 16, the first part of this passage. She says, now promise me that because I have protected you, that you will protect me and that you will save alive my household. And then she let them down through the window by a scarlet cord. Her faith was rewarded. And we need to bear in mind that this faith was really faith that she had. Because she laid her life on the line to do what she did. Now, this woman was a pagan, the product of a pagan society. She was amongst the worshipers of Baal, and the creed of Baal worship was, if it works, do it. If it doesn't work, forget it. The, on the practical side of the worship of Baal, there was a pragmatism that anything that worked was good, and if it didn't work, it was no good. That was their standard of goodness and badness. If it worked, it's good. If it doesn't work, it's no good. And on the moral side of it, their morality was programmed and planned immorality. They had no morality. And so being a product of her society, she had no reason to expect that they'd save her. If her people were in the same position, they would not honor such an agreement. They would eradicate the enemy. They would kill the informers just the same way they killed everybody else when they conquered the land. Indeed, the history of the ancient East uh, contains instances where certain people within a city would betray the city and allow the enemy into the gates because they knew defeat was inevitable and they wanted to save themselves. And as the first act of the new rulers, the pagans who were Baal worshippers would bring the informants before the population of the city and they would be the first ones to die. And so this woman had no reason to expect that they would honor their commitment to her. Her faith was faith indeed. Somehow the God who had parted the seas and allowed his people through who had defeated their enemies in the wilderness and who had now brought them to the land of promise, somehow she had developed a trust in that God and his people. But her faith was faith indeed. It was not based on reason. It was not based on logic. Indeed, the only logical thing for her to do would have been to turn the spies over and hope that the city didn't fall because if she had been found concealing those spies, she would have died on the spot as a traitor to her own people. But here indeed was faith. And if you will uh, read, or you have read, I'm sure, the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the Faith's Hall of Fame, you will find mentioned there among Abraham and all of the other great heroes of faith, you will find Rahab the harlot who by true faith protected the spies that came to her. It is a footnote to history, but if you will examine the genealogies of Jesus Christ as given at the front of the Gospels, you will discover that among the predecessors of Jesus Christ in the genealogical, whatever it is, in his family tree, you will find Rahab the harlot. Now stop to think about that for a moment. This woman was in the line between Seth and David. Jesus was one of her descendants because of her faith. She became accepted among the people of Israel, all of her past, all of her paganism... All of her sin, all of the racial differences were wiped out, and she became a part of the family tree of the Messiah. Verses seventeen to twenty-two Here are the commandments concerning the cord of Scarlet. Indeed, many have taken this metaphor and have done studies on the blood of the throughout the Bible blood as remission for sins and have called it the scarlet thread through the Bible. The study of the blood begins in Genesis when God killed animals and made garments of skins for Adam and Eve so that their nakedness might be covered and blood was shed to provide for their needs. The New Testament takes this cord of scarlet as a type of the blood of Christ. For it was by the scarlet cord that the spies were let down through the window outside the wall and made their escape. Their agreement with her, as we read in these verses, was that all who were within the house where the scarlet cord hung from the window would be safe. But that if anyone within the house ventured outside the door their blood would be on their own heads because the safety was where the cord was hung it is reminiscent of the night of Passover where God said I will hover over the door and everyone who is within a house which is covered by the blood will be safe but anyone who ventures outside the door his blood will be his own responsibility. And it is a fit symbol of salvation, for it is within the place of safety, within the blood of Jesus, that forgiveness is found and that safety is achieved. And all who refuse the blood of Christ die and their sin In their sin, in their death, their damnation is their own responsibility because they have refused to be protected by the blood. The cord is like the blood. Under it is the only place of safety. And then in verses 23 and 24, here is the report of the spies. Now it is remarkable in its simplicity, the account here, you know, Joshua didn't really need any encouragement to take the land. He had already put, his, put himself on the spot. He had already committed himself to cross the river and to fight the battle. And when the, spores, the spies returned, they passed across the river. They came to Joshua and they told him all things that befell them. And notice it was they who said, not Joshua. Joshua already knew it. They said, truly... The Lord has delivered into our hands all the land, for even the inhabitants of the country do faint because of us. I guess the great lesson of Joshua chapter 2, preparing to invade the land, is the lesson that we, the people of God, need to learn from their mistake. And that lesson is that God really and genuinely knows what He wants us to do. And that God truly possesses all the information necessary before He makes a decision. And that the one thing we must do is to obey God. And when we plan, and when we look to the future... It is not, shall we achieve? It is not, shall we grow? It is not, will God bless? It is not, shall the ministry prosper? It is only for the purpose of seeking how we may perform the task to which we have been appointed. God never asks anybody for advice. And I cannot emphasize strongly enough that it is carnal, it is unbelief, it is in total and complete opposition to the very nature of God when we insist on an advanced explanation of how God's going to do everything He tells us to do. Our response is, is to be what this response was. Joshua said, we shall cross this river. Prepare yourselves for the battle. We will trust God for the plan. And we will follow at His command. That is the great lesson of Joshua chapter 2. It is easy for us to believe the word We who have been saved, we believe the book. We believe what it says. Is it Should it be any harder for us to believe that the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who, when the trumpets of the priest sounded in faith, just took the walls of Jericho with his finger and knocked them down flat, can handle anything we face? Can we believe that? Well, if we can't, we need to forget it. Scripture says the just shall live by faith. For it was by faith, as Hebrews 11 says, that Abram left his home at Ur of the Chaldees and, and journeyed 900 miles to the strange city of Haran where distant relatives lived. And from there, when he had buried his brother and when he had buried Terah, his father, he journeyed another thousand miles to a strange place he had heard of only in tales of travelers because God told him to do it. And it is by faith that we shall do what God wants us to do. Corporately, we shall. Individually, I pray that we will. For the great God of all grace, as Peter calls him in chapter 5 of his first epistle, has suffered no apoplexy, no senility has set in, no atrophy of his muscles, no weakening of his mental capacities, no diminishing of his power. And as we follow, wholeheartedly, Freely, joyfully. If there is a river, it will part. If there is a wall, it will fall. If there is an enemy, the Lord, as 1 Chronicles 20 says, shall go before us and do battle. And we very simply must obey. Which is in the final analysis a lot nicer than the alternative, which is dying in the wilderness. Amen.